You may be seated. As you are, please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of Christmas, uh, an annual reminder of the incarnation of Christ, that beautiful truth that the God of the universe who spoke all of creation into being by the power of his word became a little baby. And he grew just like us, a human being, fully human in every way, and yet without sin. What wonderful truth that is. We thank you for the fact that Jesus is our older brother, for the fact that he sympathizes with our weaknesses, our pains, our sorrows, and especially for the fact that he has made his righteousness our own, taking our sin upon himself on the cross, that we might have forgiveness and walk with you. We thank you for this greatest gift at Christmas time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I like uh, genealogy. I enjoy studying family history and and it's neat because we've got a lot of different things in our family that people have kept for a long time. And, and so we've got some of these artifacts, old letters and things like that that are fun for me to read through. And I especially enjoy reading through some of my great-grandfather's things, my, my father's father's father, uh, you know, great-grandfather Scribner, Frank J. Scribner. He was a Congregationalist minister. And it's fun for me to read through some of his old things. We actually have some of his old sermons that we have the manuscripts for. And, and it's fun to look through those. And one of those that, that I've got that is uh, one of my favorite ones to look at is, is one that he wrote called the Protestant Ave Maria. It's an interesting one. He said that the reason I have it actually is because it was attached to a letter. And he had made a copy of it. Um, he had a friend who was a nun actually. And she, she had heard this sermon or, or read it and, and suggested to him that he send it to the Pope. And he thought that that was kind of presumptuous of himself to do, but she pressed and pushed and, and, and insisted that he do so. So he did. He, he sent a copy of it to the Pope, and I've got this copy of this letter that he sent to the Pope with this, with this sermon titled, A Protestant Ave Maria. And the basic point of it was that, that you know, even though in, in our minds, Catholicism uh, improperly venerates Mary and, and makes too much of her at times. The reality for Protestants is we often make too little of Mary. We, we do not appropriately respect her. We do not give her the honor that she is rightly due. And she is indeed due honor. Now she's not perfect, not sinless in any way, but she does... In this song that we're looking at today, which came from her lips, inspired by God, she does give us a succinct picture of what the Christian life really is to look like. It makes sense that that it would be such a good picture. After all, the words that she is saying are the words of Scripture. I say this in one sense because the good Dr. Luke copied down these things that she said. Uh, we assume that he met with her, or at least with somebody in the, f- the family of Jesus, and was told what things she said. And so he wrote these words down, inscripturated them. They became part of his 
telling of the gospel. And so they are scripture because of that. But they're also scripture because they so closely echo the words of the Old Testament. Time and time again throughout this song, we see her alluding to Old Testament truth. And perhaps no place is this more obvious than when we look to the song of Hannah in 1 Samuel 2. You might on your own look back to that later, 1 Samuel 2 verses 1 through 10. And and we understand the context is very similar in, in Hannah's song. It's a song of a devout Jewish woman who is was the mother of an an impossible child, a child that could not be born and yet was. And we see that uh, as that child grew, it was a special child. And there are even other indicators that point us to this. In 1 Samuel 2, 26, we read, Now the boy Samuel continued to grow, both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. Now that, that, if we're New Testament Christians, rings bells, doesn't it? We know that it's said of Jesus in Luke 2, 52. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. It's very, very similar language, and that's very intentional. We're supposed to draw these parallels. And Mary drew those parallels as well. And the contents of her song and Hannah's song are very similar. Both of them, uh, we, we hear speech of how the singer's soul magnifies the Lord. Both of them proclaim the holiness of God's name. Both of them uh, rejoice the that God has scattered the proud. Both of them exult in the fact that he has lifted the humble. And in both of them, there is talk of how the hungry have been filled with good things while the rich have been sent away. You see, Mary wasn't perfect by any sense of the imagination, but she did certainly know her Bible. She knew the word of God. She was a student of it. And that's how she was able to incorporate these truths from the scripture into her own song. I wonder how many of the the teenagers here right now, if you're a teenager here, maybe plus or minus a little bit, just think, would you be able to compose a poem or a song that was able to just pull so many illusions from scripture we're able to build together how about if you're an adult here would you be able to do that let's not just point at the teenagers i don't think many of us would be able to do that it's probably because we don't know scripture as well as mary knew scripture and we probably should all seek to know scripture better well as i said this song that she writes here is a concise picture of what the Christian life is to look like. And I think we can break it up to two parts. First of all, our part, and secondly, God's part. First, as we we look at our part, I I want to start with verses 46 and 47. And as I was uh, putting together my notes, I I, I put verses 46 and 47 next to this. And and when I see numbers, I'm kind of funny with numbers. Uh, I've always liked numbers. I have funny mnemonic devices I use with with memorizing numbers and and usually with numbers like when I had a locker combination or something like that any two-digit number I kind of make it into a year in my mind and being a baseball fan that's usually what I kind of tie it to so like if I had a combination of a locker in school that was like 27 45 08 
I'd say, okay, well, that was, yeah, the Yankees, you know, the Bronx Bombers, the, the great team they had, okay, then. And then the Tigers, the year that they beat the Cubs, okay. And then, then, then 08, oh, well, that was the last time the Cubs won the World Series. Okay, so, so Yankees, Tigers, Cubs. Okay, now I've memorized my locker combination. It's very easy. You see? That's how you do it. You peg it to something like that. Well, well baseball is, is what I usually peg those things to. But there's one other thing that I sometimes, sometimes have these numbers that pop up in my mind. And when I saw 46-47, something occurred to me. The Westminster Divines met in 1646 and 1647. Isn't that interesting? Now, there's no spiritual truth behind that. There's no great meaning. It's just a curious coincidence that verses 46 and 47 would be where I'd start here in 46 and 47 were the years the Westminster Divines met when they put together the, the Westminster Standards. But it is interesting to note, what's the, what's the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism? What is the chief end of man? And the answer to that question is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And we see here in verses 46 and 47 that very reality proclaimed to us in the Song of Mary. You see, there are really two sides of the same coin, and that coin appears here. Some scholars actually suggest that it is from this very song, from these very verses, verses 46 and 47 here in Luke 1, that we we find the reason that, that the Westminster Divines came up with that answer. Luke 1, 46, Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. Chief end of man is to glorify God. That's what she's doing here. She says, I magnif- my soul magnifies the Lord. In your Bible, there might be a heading over this, this song called uh, Magnificat. Uh, that's kind of the, the name that this song has been given. It, it comes from the Latin translation for this phrase. My soul magnifies the Lord was Magnificat anima mia dominum. It means my soul magnifies the Lord. And so that word Magnificat is kind of the shorthand title for this song of Mary's. This idea of magnifying the Lord. What, what does that mean exactly, to magnify? Well, I was thinking about this this week. I thought, well, magnifying glasses. We've all had heard of those or used those. What is a magnifying glass used for? Now, if you're, you're a, a precocious young boy, perhaps you use it to start fires in a pile of dry leaves, right? But, but that's not the primary use of a magnifying glass. The primary use of a magnifying glass is to make things bigger, you know, see them bigger so that they're more easily observed, more readily seen for what they really are. And so it is that we are to magnify God. We are to make much of God. We are to make sure that as we magnify him, he should so dominate our vision that All that we see, we see through him. And as others look at us, they see him through us. That is what it means to magnify God. And how exactly do we do that? Well, you'll you'll hear sometimes, uh, you know, at a a ball game, somebody will score the winning touchdown maybe, and and they'll come on the interview right afterwards, and he'll say, I just want to give all glory to God. And that's good. I'm not speaking against that. But I think that 
falls short sometimes because you know, you'll, you'll hear the guy say, I want to give all glory to God, and then he'll leave and you'll find out on the way home he committed some crime or something, right? And, and these two things don't really add up. You know, they, they, they don't fit. That's, it's not just saying I want to give glory to God. It's not the same as giving glory to God. You are not magnifying God. You are not making much of God just in your words. It has to be in your actions. It has to be in all that we do and the way we live our lives, the way we carry on, the way that others see us going about our business. And Mary specifically did so, we see in this passage, through her humble attitude and her faithful response to God's call on her life. We should mirror that. We should likewise have an attitude of humility seeking after God's will and his direction for us, not merely seeking after what we want, not thinking that the world revolves around us and and we need to order all things so that I am happy in this moment and I get what I want, but rather we're seeking God's will, God's direction, God's glory. He needs to be elevated. Now for many of us, as we think about this, we say, boy, that sounds, that sounds just terrible. I have to set aside my desires and seek after his instead. I, I don't get to just focus on what I want. This, this idea of glorifying God sounds like an act of drudgery. But it is nothing of the sort. Far from it, in fact. Because, what remember, coming back to the Westminster Divines, what is the chief end of man? It's to glorify God and altogether to glorify God and enjoy him forever, right? It's not just a matter of, of trying to follow him and doing it and put your head down and I'm going to trudge through this and it's kind of like punching the clock and it's a job and I've got to put in my 30 years and then I'll be done with this and, and I can move on to what I really want to do. No, it's actually a matter of enjoying him and And as we seek after him, we will see that that we will have enjoyment. We will find true joy in following him and glorifying him. Uh, Mary says here, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. She finds her joy in him. Now for many people, God is the last place they would look for joy. But I promise you, he is the best place to find it. I know when I worked for Enterprise Rent-A-Car Company uh, right out of college, uh, maybe you've seen the commercials. I saw one recently. So Enterprise actually hires more people right out of college than any other company in, in America. And that doesn't surprise me at all. Uh, very many people right out of college hired. That's where I, I was hired out of college. And, and there's kind of a, maybe a fraternity atmosphere uh, in much of the company. Uh, you, you get all these young folks, especially a lot of young men. There are women too, but, but you know, a lot of these young folks, and, and they're just one step out of college. And, and, and frankly, there's a lot of them looking for their joy in a lot of places that they ought not to be looking. They're looking for joy in, in promiscuity. They're looking for joy in getting drunk. They're looking for joy in all kinds of places that are the wrong places to look. And I can remember talking to different people about this when I worked there. And I can, I can remember 
having conversations with them about, about my faith and the, the fact that people just were really honest with me. And they said that they, they didn't want to follow God. They didn't want to seek after him because they realized that if they were really going to follow him, if they were going to really be serious about their faith, then that would mean giving up all these things that they sought joy from. They wouldn't be able to do those. They were very frank with me. They made no pretense about it. And I would say to them, but, but don't you see, as you look at me and you look at yourself, we work together every day, we know each other. Which one of us is more joyful? Which one of us has a life that's more full of joy? And, and inevitably they would say it was me and not them. You see, because, because there is a joy in my life that comes from following God. Now, that doesn't mean that my life was happy all the time. I never had any troubles. Absolutely not. Plenty of troubles. Plenty of hard times. Our joy that we have in God does not erase the hard times. It does not make them go away. It does not guard us from all of them. But it, it comforts us in the midst of them. It lifts us up. It strengthens us. It gives us the endurance to persevere through troubles. That's what that joy does. It is a joy that we need and we can find only in God. He has made it known to us in the person of Christ Jesus. This is morning, our prayer group, we were looking at John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And I, I, I was just contemplating that and the fact that how glad I am that Jesus says that. He says, I am the way. There is no other way. You see, because, because if he said, you know, there's a whole lot of ways and you kind of have to figure out which is the right one, that's a little bit harder. Or if he said, you know, you just have to do this on your own. Well, that's impossible. But he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But, but see, it's a free gift that he gives. He gives the free offer of the gospel to each and every one of us. If only we trust in him, if we receive his payment for our sins, if we place our faith in him, our trust in him, our dependence on him, then we too shall be saved. We'll have forgiveness and we can walk with God in joy for all of eternity. What a wonderful gift it is that he has given that's what we're created for. We're created to walk with God. We're created to glorify God. We're created to enjoy God. I, I've used the example before, but, but I think it's the best illustration I, I have. If, if you take the hammer and the hammer tries to change the light bulb, the hammer will be very frustrated, right? But if you ask a hammer to pound a nail into a piece of wood, what sweet satisfaction that hammer will feel. Because that's what it was made for. It was made to pound a nail into a piece of wood. That's, that's the very reason for which it was created. And we as human beings were created for the very purpose of glorifying God. And so we will find great satisfaction and joy and meaning and purpose in carrying this out. If only we focus ourselves on that. Now Mary says that this is where her focus is. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. You see, she realizes she needs a Savior. 
She realizes that she needs a Savior. What does she need to be saved from? Well, we see that in another uh, nativity passage, Matthew 1. Uh, This is a passage where an angel appears to Joseph in a dream and says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins you see our sins leave us in need of salvation each and every one of us there's not not a one of us who can earn the favor of god each of us is standing in need of salvation because of our sin we can compare ourselves to others perhaps we compare ourselves to to the criminal we see on tv and we say boy i'm better than him or maybe it's our 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 nosy and annoying neighbor boy i'm definitely better than him Maybe it's just the average person. I think I'm better than the average person. But it doesn't matter, you see. Because none of those are the standards by which God judges us. He judges us on a standard of perfect holiness. And each and every one of us falls dreadfully short. And that is why it's not just about our part in the Christian life. It is about God's part as well. And that's what we want to look at the rest of our time together here. What does God do? Well, first of all, he humbles the exalted. Luke 1.51 and following. He has shown strength with his army, has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate and the rich he has sent empty away. You know, it's an interesting thing. I, I was this last week, I was just wondering, who, who are the most powerful people in the history of the world? And so I just did a Google search, and I saw a thing where it said a list that Henry Kissinger made of people he thought were the most powerful people in the history of the earth. And, and you know, the top six people he had, Julius Caesar. Okay, yeah, that's indeed. Uh, Qin Shi Huang, who, who I was not familiar with. He was emperor in China, uh, 3rd century B.C. Peter the Great, Tsar of Russia. Mahatma Gandhi, he had on there. Napoleon Bonaparte, Teddy Roosevelt. It's an interesting list, an impressive list. You'd expect it to be an impressive list. These are the most powerful people ever. I looked at some other lists. Other people on the list included Abraham Lincoln, Adolf Hitler, Queen Elizabeth I, Alexander the Great, Joseph II of Austria. It's It's a diverse group of people. All kinds of different people. You know, some we'd say are good people, the good guys and the bad guys. And, and some we'd say uh, were, were maybe more familiar to us, some less familiar. Uh, one was a woman. Uh, different people from different ethnicities, different backgrounds. All kinds of different things. But there's one thing they all have in common. And you know what that is? It leapt out at me. They're all dead. Every last one of them. And today, they wield no power whatsoever. God is not impressed by their power. He wasn't then, and he isn't now. He always humbles the exalted. We look at the scripture, we see the story of the Exodus and, and Pharaoh, mighty Pharaoh, and how God humbled Pharaoh and delivered his people. We consider David, and Goliath, and how he humbled Goliath and the Philistines, and again delivered his people. You notice how his humbling of the mighty and his deliverance of his people are tied together time and again. 
We see he has shown strength with his arm. Verse 51 says he scattered the proud of the thoughts of their hearts. Then 52 talks about how he brought down the mighty from their thrones. In 53, the rich he has sent away empty. Notice the different types of power, the different types of exaltedness that he he banishes, that his strong arm wipes out. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it well. He says, can you not see that everything that man boasts in, his understanding, his power, his social status, his influence, his righteousness, his morality, his ethics, his code, every one of them is utterly demolished by this son of God. He humbles the exalted. But he also exalts the humble. Note in verse 48. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Mary says, all generations will call me blessed. It's not, not that they'll all worship me. Not, not that that's the case. But rather they will proclaim how blessed she has been by God. Precisely because she has done nothing to deserve it. She, she didn't earn this blessing in any way. That's what makes it such a blessing. She hasn't even done it with, with her humility. It's not her humility that she is bragging about somehow here. She's talking about her humble estate, how she was, she was basically nothing. She was, she was the lowest of the low. She was, she was young. She was poor. She was from a nowhere town of, of Nazareth. Remember, later on we'll, we'll hear these words, you know, uh, can anything good come from Nazareth? You know, it's uh, this backwater, nothing town. She has nothing going for her. Everything's kind of against her by worldly standards. And God chooses to work through her because he is a mighty God. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, she says in verse 49. He who is mighty. See, God chooses to work through the humble, through the low, through the weak, so that his might can be shown. He is holy. Holy is his name, she says. He is holy, and even so, he uses his might to do great things for me, a sinner. What mercy there is in that. What what grace, what mercy. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation, she says in verse 50. His loving kindness, his steadfast love, that steadfast love which the psalmist says is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him from his righteousness to children's children. What mercy and might come together in God. And so we read in verse 53, he filled the hungry with good things. What what good things do you think she's talking about? You know, she's, she's probably not talking about you know, uh, that, that big BLT sandwich I told you guys about a month or two ago. She's not talking about a, a steak. She's not talking about some great Christmas candy. What good things is she talking about? Well, consider this. Jesus will tell us in his Sermon on the Mount that blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. 
for they will be satisfied. And that is the satisfaction that Mary received. She knew that she in and of herself was not righteous. There was, there was a need for a savior, she said. And yet Jesus satisfies her righteousness by his righteous life on her behalf and on mine and on yours if you trust in him as well. And his righteousness becomes yours. You become clothed in the righteous robes of Christ so that when God looks on you, he sees you as his child, pure and holy in every way. That's why God can say, you know, as far as the east is for the west, so far as he removed our sins from us, he sees us as perfectly holy, robed in the righteousness of Christ. And so it is that he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. You see, this was not some new thing that God just came up with for Mary. He didn't just decide on that day, I'll try this thing out. It wasn't some plan B that he came up with after a whole lot of other things messed up. No, this was just a continuation of the mercy that he had shown to his people throughout all of history for he had acted on their behalf. This blessing of Mary and this blessing of us is part of the outworking of his larger plan from the very beginning that his mercy might be made much of, that his glory might be proclaimed throughout all the cosmos. And that in Christ Jesus we might find salvation. The world doesn't revolve around you. It doesn't revolve around me. But it does revolve around him. And so let us humble ourselves. James says in James 4 verse 6, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He goes on to say, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Let us remember Mary and her example and follow this instruction of James. Let's remember how, how she was humble, seeking after his will. And let us remember the greatest example of humility, that of Christ Jesus, the God of the universe, who spoke and the universe leapt into existence. And he decided to become a little baby for you, for me. We, we sang the words before, Jesus is our childhood's pattern day by day. Like us, he grew. He was little, weak, and helpless. Tears and smiles like us, he knew. What wonder upon wonders that the God of the universe would become this little baby. This little baby needing diapers changed, needing to be fed and burped, needing somebody else to care for him when he for all eternity had upheld the whole universe by the power of his word. What humility. And God chose to work through that humility to bring salvation to you and to me. This Christmas time, as we look to the manger as we look to the Christ child, let us emulate his humility and make much of the God who has worked through it. Please pray with me.
Our Heavenly Father, we are oh so quick to seek our own glory. Oh so quick to elevate ourselves. Oh so quick to make much of our own names. Forgive us. Help us to have a better view of you and of your mercy and of your might and of your holiness and help us to realize how very far far short we fall and help us to humble ourselves so you do not need to humble us. As we are humbled, we trust in you that you will exalt us, that you will you will do your will You unite us to Christ who reigns at your right hand, even right now. And so we can be said, even right now, to be seated in the heavenlies. What a wonderful gift that is. This Christmas time, let us rejoice in that. And may we love you more and more as we see you better and better through the person of Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Please rise with me now and sing.